Raising children can be particularly challenging these days. There are dozens of books and articles offering competing answers to nearly every parenting question you might have, from how to get your baby to sleep, to how to help siblings get along, to how much screen time is too much, to whether to let your tween attend a sleepover. Meanwhile, every parenting decision you make, even the most mundane ones, can feel consequential. It's no wonder that many parents feel tired, stressed, and unsure of whether they're doing a good job. In a recent Pew Research Center survey, 47% of mothers and 34% of fathers said they felt that parenting was tiring most or all of the time, and one-third of mothers and one-quarter of fathers felt it was stressful all or most of the time. So as a parent, how do you know which of your choices matter most and where to focus your limited parenting energy? What's the right balance between keeping kids safe and giving them freedom? How should you respond when your kids try your patience with whining, sibling fights, or teenage sarcasm? How should your parenting change as your kids get older? And most important, how can you develop a loving, supportive relationship with your children that will stand the test of time and lead to a happy, well-adjusted family? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. We have two guests today. They are the authors of a new book published by the American Psychological Association called Good Enough Parenting, a six-point plan for a stronger relationship with your child. First is Dr. Tim Cavell, a professor in the Department of Psychological Science at the University of Arkansas and a practicing psychologist. Dr. Cavell's research focuses on parent and mentor-based interventions for children at risk, including programs for aggressive children and chronically bullied children. Dr. Cavell has also published more than 60 research articles and chapters, as well as several books for clinicians who work with at-risk kids and their families. He's also the father of three children who are now in their 20s and 30s. Our second guest today is Dr. Lauren Quetch, also a professor in the Department of Psychological Science at the University of Arkansas and a licensed clinical psychologist. Her work focuses on children with disruptive behavior and autism spectrum disorder, and in particular, helping parents of children with autism build stronger parent-child relationships. She also works with community mental health agencies in an effort to help families get access to evidence-based treatments faster. Dr. Quetch is the mother of four young children. Dr. Cavell's and Dr. Quetch's book aims to help the parents of children from toddlers to teens learn practical, science-based strategies to build healthy and lasting parent-child relationships. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Let's start with the title of the book and why you chose it. What does it mean to be a good enough parent and why should parents aim for good enough as opposed to spectacular or out of this world? We must concede that the term was borrowed. Um, the phrase good enough mother was coined back in the 50s by a psychologist named Donald Winnicott. And the phrase good enough parenting has been around for quite a while. In fact, you could probably find two or three books with similar titles that might invoke the term good enough or good enough parenting. It's interesting to, if you look at the history of Winnicott's use of the term because he thought that the perfect parent was less effective than the good enough parent. And what, what he meant by that was that the good enough parent doesn't always meet every child's need. In fact, he used the term fail. Sometimes they fail to meet their child's every need. And in so doing, children learn to cope on their own. 
And we think that's an important message for today's parent because there's tons of information. To me, it feels like a weight to try to be a good parent. It seems that if the bar has been set to perfect or at least quote unquote effective, and we wanted to write a book that describes in a more holistic fashion what it means to be a parent that's going to do what matters most and not wear yourself out in the process or not become a hyper hover parent as well. Yeah. I think uh, when we were talking about this and trying to decide on this title as well, you know, I, I have four young kids and um, one of the things that uh, I've been involved in, I have, there's a group of a few mothers that graduated from um, my PhD program and we all sort of lean on each other for parenting advice, if you will. And what ends up happening, what I, what I've realized is a lot of what can be consumed about parenting is set, sets the bar really high to the point of if I do something wrong, what does that mean for my child? My child is going to fail in life. And this I've noticed has create, uh, created a really high amount of anxiety for new parents um, in this generation. And I think uh, it has really helped to talk to them and sort of bounce ideas off of each other, but also recognize that some of the things that we say are you know, really important. Like, you know, how does my kid look today? Or uh, maybe did I not handle this situation exactly right? Comes down to, well, sometimes it's okay to just be good enough. Because if we worry too much about all of the fine details, um, kind of like what was Tim was talking about is we, we miss the, the larger picture of what it means to be a parent and what it means to, to run a family. And so good enough, I think is, often now the advice that parents need more than ever because they're told so many things about you have to be this way and a perfect parent looks like this and it's just too much. It's too much to manage. Can I add to that? Because I, I agree to wholeheartedly with what Lauren said. And, and I think our book aims for a sweet spot between, you know, there's one kind of parenting book that's a rather folksy, homespun approach to parenting it's more of a literary work than a reflection of the science of parenting. And then there are those books that are drawn tightly from the science of parenting, but those can get rather prescriptive and exacting. And, and we were, our book, I think, is aimed sort of between the two at a, at a sweet spot, which says, let, let's build from, let's draw from the science of parenting but let's render it in a way that's user-friendly, that's parent-friendly, that's digestible, and that distills this, the, the, the key findings down to uh, an essential whole, and, uh, uh, to what matters most. Does the good enough approach, in effect, also extend to the kids? Because, you know, there's so much pressure on our children these days to be absolutely perfect and spectacular. So if you're a good enough parent, well, maybe you can be a good enough son or daughter as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I think sometimes people don't realize that when you set standards really high for yourself or for your child. Like, I want my child to be the greatest athlete there ever was, right? And now I know what it means. I mean, that means they need to be involved in three sports that take up all their time and the AP classes. They need to be involved in all of those because my child's going to be the best. And what ends up happening is um, the child gets burnt out. The parent can get burnt out. And when you base 
uh, your family and your relationship off of those accomplishments rather than the relationship you actually have with one another, um, you lose you lose something in there and and that can cause more distress um, rather than just focusing on, again, what matters most, the, the good enough. Yeah, and I, I think it's been way overstated that our parenting shapes our children and their personality and their future. There are a lot of other factors besides parenting practices that shape who children become. And, and more recent research uh, speaks loudly to that. And as a parent, my tendency is to adopt a posture of discovery. Let me discover who my children will become. And let me be ready to love and accept them when I discover who they are. But the notion that I'm exercising my preferences and shaping who they are and who they become is both mythical and dangerous. So um, it's an interesting posture to adopt, but I think it's a healthy one. Let me learn who my child is. Let me learn who my child will become. And let me practice accepting who that child is and conveying a message of love and belonging. That's a different way to go about the task of parenting. And I think that that segues into the question that I had, where you write about the most important job that parents have is to build a relationship with their children. And I think that might surprise some people, maybe who don't think that they need to build a relationship because they have a relationship. But what do you mean? What is the special approach that you recommend that might not be immediately evident to a harried mother or father? So I believe that we've got core components that we highlight within this book. There are uh, three aspects that we believe are really important for a relationship um, between a parent and a child. And then we also have um, some components that we feel are sort of the foundations of those things too. So uh, largely when we're thinking about a relationship, which Tim alluded to already previously, was this uh, posture of acceptance. So when we think about um, our relationship with our child, we're really saying, I see you and I accept who you are for who you are, right? So I have four little children and I may parent them pretty similarly. You know, they're all close in age together as well. And they are different. They're different people. They have different interests. They have different inclinations. They have different temperaments. And so part of being a parent then is first saying, I see that you are who you are and uh, I'm okay with that. And that can look in uh, many different ways. It can be very outward in the way that we express that. And it can also be um, more silent in, in the way that we express that too. So sometimes not saying anything. And rather than correcting your child all the time. Um, the second component of that then is containing. So thinking about our job as a parent is also to recognize that we, you know, children are uh, impulsive sometimes. <laughs> we still have to welcome them into the, the culture and society in which we live and, and tell them what is and is not acceptable. And so our practices of um, containment sort of help us do that. And then the last component um, within that is uh, being a leader and uh, your leadership within the family. So outwardly expressing um, what it means to be a good person, uh, talking about what our values are within a family, and then uh, sharing that with our children too. 
I, there's a little more to that and I'll let Tim take over. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think if we zoom back a little bit, I, I think there needs to be an appreciation that, um, we have cast, we being mainly professionals like Lauren and I have tended to cast parenting as something set apart from relationships. There are some parenting advice that's like an itemized list of if your child does X, you should do Y. If your child has this problem or engages in this behavior, and this is how you should respond without appreciating the context of the relationship in which those events occur. You know, depending on how strong or strained the relationship is, you might want to do very different things because at the end of the day, it's the relationship that will move your child toward being a good, healthy citizen. And I tend to say it this way, Kim, if there was some farcical choice I had to make between two surrogate parents, one who was very good at relationships in his or her life and one who knew a lot about parenting. I would choose the one who was good at relationships, okay, because that's what it is. And But too often, I think because of people like us throwing out so much advice, folks become parents and they move into this mode where they sort of jettison what they think about in terms of how to make a relationship work. None of the relationships we have should involve being victimized, taking advantage of, being abused. None of the relationships we have should involve not trying to convey a message of acceptance to the people we love and care about. And none of the relationships we have should involve abandoning what our core values are, who, how we carry ourselves. So you want to bring all those relationship uh, components to the parent-child relationship, not just because it's a parent-child relationship, because that's what it means to have a healthy relationship. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, you ask parents to think about their parenting goals, which are not the same as the goals that they might have for their children's future. What do you mean when you talk about parenting goals? How should parents set them and how can they stick to them? That's a great question. We describe parenting goals as the goals parents have for guiding their parenting behavior. Uh, But it's seldom a topic of discussion. What are your parenting goals? Again, we tend to think of it in terms of what we want for our children downstream. But if you are a parent, a working parent, you go home that evening, you have some goals in mind as a parent. Oftentimes, they're sort of hidden and maybe embedded in automatic reactions to children. Things become sort of mindless and routine. And we may not be forward thinking or, or conscious about what are we trying to do in these interactions I have with my child? And if there's value in having a relationship where children feel accepted, they are periodically contained. In other words, as a message of this, you cannot do. And the parent is carrying himself or herself in a way that espouses good values. Then, then those are great goals to guide parenting behavior. Now, will you know the outcome immediately in terms of your children's functioning? No, it's, it's like a plan. It takes time for that to unfold. So the parents, the goals for parenting behavior are more proximal to what we do in any given day or situation. And to add on that too, when we act automatically, we may be doing ourselves harm in that relationship. And so thinking about our goal as just having a stronger relationship with our child rather than worrying about who they're going to be or are they the smartest kid in the class? Are they the best athlete? Are they the best dressed? Are they going to be, you know, X, Y, and Z that may snap in, um, 
an auto, as an automatic goal that you're not thinking about where you're snarky with your kid or you're telling them what they need to be doing. And that sort of forces your hand sometimes to say, how hard am I going to push if my kid isn't doing what I want them to do right now? I may be pushing an agenda I'm not even aware of consciously at the expense of the relationship that I have with my child. And so if my goal is maybe I'm, I'm struggling with the relationship with my child right now. So if my goal, if I'm conscious about, I care about my child feeling loved and wanting them to love me back too. I mean, obviously you can't make your child do anything um, in that way. You can't force them to love you. And yet if you have that goal of, I want us to be stronger together and you're more thoughtful about it, that can change how you act in a moment. And so cleaning up the floor or addressing the tone in, uh, in which they spoke back to you may seem like that's the most important thing if we're thinking automatically in that moment. But if we say my relationship is the most important, our relationship together is the most important, then maybe you let some of those things go. And that actually ends up building that relationship stronger. Yeah. It's being intentional, deliberate, and explicit with why you're doing what you're doing as a parent. Uh, as opposed to reacting out of uh, some hidden emotional goal, like I'm frustrated or I'm tired, or um, out of some preference for for to live vicariously through your child. So if the and we offer to parents that you know useful goals to keep in mind are conveying a message of acceptance, conveying a message of containment that there are some things you cannot do. Uh, and then conveying a message of what our family values, what we, what we believe in and hold dear. So let me pick up from, from what you've just said, um, because you're talking about containment rather than discipline. And in the book, you offer a rule of thumb. You call it the 80-20 rule. What is that and, and how does that work? So we, we make the provocative point that effective discipline is selective discipline. Okay. Now, there's a lot of science on inept, what Jerry Patterson and colleagues at Oregon Social Learning Center used to call inept discipline uh, with children who were, whose behavior was disruptive and defiant. And the pattern that was observed in these parents was, was of two sorts, either being quite harsh and overly punitive or being quite lax and permissive. Okay. Not unlike, um, you know, uh, Baumrin's uh, distinction. Um, so, and it makes sense if you're a parent who's having trouble controlling your child's behavior, then you might wax and wane between being permissive and harsh, harsh and permissive. And so it can be countered by having clarity about, well, what are the things that matter most? What are the things that you want to be consistent on in terms of of being a disciplinarian? And what things do you let go? Uh, sometimes it's said in the parenting literature, Kim, as choose your battles wisely, right? It's, it's a very common phrase. It's a bit unfortunate th- that the word battle is in there, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, the, the, the point about choosing wisely is, is well, well founded. But it's not often talked about. It's like, well, what does that mean? You know, choose your battle wisely. Well, we think that the, the science of parenting points us in a, in a direction there in, the, in developmental psychology. One of the uh, behaviors that is most problematic for children's development is their use of coercion, which is a a broad term used to define various forms of 
aggression or antagonistic or threatening behavior. Okay. Children who learn to use coercion, aggression, and uh, other sorts of, of antagonistic behavior are at risk for a lot of problems downstream, school dropout, delinquency, substance use, things like that. And so clearly this is a category that matters most, that matters a lot. So if you're looking for where to put your time and energy, it makes sense to put your time and energy on, on limiting your child's use of coercion and aggression. Now, there are a whole host of other things that matter little to children's development. I think we give an example in the book of uh, uh, bacon eating. You know, what if your daughter was eating bacon and only bacon and, and just it persisted and you said, well, you got to eat something else and oh, that's all she ate. So at what point does bacon eating rise to a significant problem? It might, might take a while before that's a significant problem or, or nose picking or whatever. There's a lot of things that, can, that we as parents can prefer that our children not do that we, don't, we find maybe disgusting or uh, you know, unsightly uh, or that it might be annoying. But that's very different than saying this behavior, if repeated, has developmental significance. There are not many of those to pay attention to, but the ones that are, you really want to pay attention to. And, and here's the, the kicker. If you're going after, let's say, hypothetically, 20 different behaviors, only two of which matter, and you're going to be spreading thin your efforts to discipline and contain and likely fail. And so you, you actually dilute your authority. You dilute the degree to which children see you as a person of authority because you're not being effective and because you're trying to, uh, to do too much. Okay. And so you want to preserve your efforts at containment for things that matter most. We actually, some of my research looked at children's beliefs about whether parents and teachers can contain them if there's a conflict in goals. Uh, we have a, uh, we had a measure and one of the items was something like, uh, you want to go play outside. Your mom says you can't go play outside. Can she make you stay inside? So it's an effort to get it. Do children believe that, that adults are in charge? Well, lo and behold, most kids say, yes, they're in charge. But for the kids who doubt that, for the kids who have a low sense of containment, they had high levels of problem behavior, regardless of how well parents discipline. So if children are operating from a belief that I can outwit you, you know, do a turnaround, can I can work around you, if they doubt your position of authority, that's not good. And so you want to protect and preserve your position of authority through the use of selective discipline. The other win that comes from that is that you reduce the number of occasions where the interactions are emotionally negative because discipline can often involve negative emotionality, unpleasant encounters. So if you reduce the occasions where you're trying to discipline your child to contain your child where there's negative emotions, then guess what happens? Your relationship is more positive than negative. And again, there's pretty consistent research that shows that an 80% or about four to one ratio of positive or neutral exchanges to negative exchanges is signals a satisfying, stable relationship. If you're a parent who's 50, at 50%, half the time it's negative, half the time it's positive, that's not good. Okay, and so the goal would be to kind of use your gut as a barometer of how is my relationship with my child going? Am I experiencing at least 80% or close to it of my interactions as neutral or positive? 
And neutral's the key part of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a, like a coin flip. Like, I never know when we're going to be back in the relationship red. Right. And I, I that was beautifully said, Tim. And I think um, often when we give that figure, you know, it's gone from, uh, it can be four to one, right? That, that uh, these things are happening as well. But um, I think people freak out because they say, how am I supposed to, you know, in a, in a society, in American society where we're like, you got to be happy. And that's a sign of um, things working well, right? I think when we start uh, providing the context of, well, you know, most of the time things should be happy, then I think that also sets up unrealistic expectations. So the important component of that is neutral, neutral or positive, not in, and so that is in direct contrast with negative. So if you're noticing that the most of the time or even half of the time you're getting into spats or your child is getting frustrated with you and angry with you, um, then that is usually a, a problem. But if it's neutral, neutral can be my kid just whined at me when I, when I gave them something, right? We can ignore that. The idea is what do we focus on and what do we care about? And so um, Tim also was talking about, um, you know, uh, when there's coercion, it could be lying, stealing, um, things that do lead to those problem behaviors later on um, and are more concerning, as we've seen. Uh, those are the things that we call, um, you know, you have to get your butt off the couch for, right? Those are the things we don't ignore. Those are the things we have to stand up and we have to deal with that um, that frustrating confrontation potentially. For young kids, it's, you know, they throw tantrums, they get really angry. Uh, I know that all too well. And, and um, recognizing those things are important. And some things just aren't worth the time or the energy because it does sacrifice that relationship that what you have with your child. So do I like that my child rolled their eyes at me or, you know, was used a whiny voice or I just cooked dinner and now, and no, ugh, mom, that's gross. <laughs> get that, get that a lot. Uh, it's sometimes it's not worth fighting about, right? You let it go, you let it slide. And it's to the benefit of the relationship because of that. And and a, an additional component to that is, um, you know, when you have a child that is really well behaving, right? So they're they're not lying, they're not um, uh, getting into physical altercations with people. You can focus on some of that smaller stuff. You know, if your kid listens to you, I don't know, young kids on average. Um, will listen six out of ten times. Really, really little kids, right? That's that's pretty good if they're they're listening six out of ten times and often when kids come in um, with that I've seen that have uh, behavior problems we're seeing zero out of ten times two out of ten times right uh, and if you've got kids that are really pretty compliant then you can you know you can start enforcing some things that maybe other parents that have a more difficult relationship with their child cannot so Hey, I told you, you know, every time you leave a room, turn off the lights or we have this rule where you put your shoes by the front door. Okay. If, if your kid is a generally happy kid and your relationship is not, um, continuously strained and they're not beating other kids up and lying, then those are the things you can focus on. But if you've got a kid that you're having a really hard relationship with and they are, and they are lying, they are, um, 
uh, getting into a lot of fights. Uh, there's a lot of uh, verbal issues going on where they're screaming at you. Those types of enforcement, those little things are what we should ignore. So it's a tiered system. And we talk about that more in the book, too. Um, I think that you you talk about mindful and mindless parenting, and I wanted to talk about the differences between the two, because I think that some of what you're talking about requires a level of mindfulness. But mindless parenting also has a role, and I think, as, as you say, it's not because the parent is unplugged or inept, uh, but what are some examples of, of the two, and how can parents use those techniques to their advantage? So we don't use the word mindless to mean that someone's being... Uh, stupid or unwise. Uh, it's meant to imply a mental state in which you're operating on automatic in an overlearned automatic way. So you're not deliberate and conscious about what you're doing. Mindful parenting, on the other hand, it involves a much more conscious, deliberate, effortful decision about what you're going to do. We can't operate that way 24-7. It's impossible whether it's a parent or anyone, but you can move into that mode at times. The, the danger is n not appreciating that some of your parenting is rather mindless, automatic and overlearned. And so if you keep finding yourself stuck in the same old dynamic of, of getting crossways with your child and you're both angry and frustrated and sad and hurt, then you might want to consider the possibility that there's some automatic overlearned aspects to your parenting. And and it would be important to in, to uh, attend to what it is that you're feeling, experiencing, and thinking as you begin to engage or interact with your child. So much we have an entire chapter in our book devoted to health. We see it as an essential ingredient in parenting, parents' health, and and much of that is emotional health. And research in the last two decades has spoken very uh, robustly to the fact that managing our emotional health requires that we can pause, we can hit the pause button psychologically and attend to what's happening inside, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, as opposed to reacting rather quickly in an automatic overwhelmed way to get rid of whatever unpleasantness we're feeling. Most people cope from the head down in that automatic overwhelmed way. And we recommend coping, we call from the ground up, getting grounded in the present moment, paying attention to what you're feeling, and then going to the head with a wise plan. So it's about being aware of, you know, awarenessing, uh, as Kabat-Zinn, the uh, person who brought mindfulness into healthcare, would say, my awarenessing is biggest than thinking because it subsumes thinking. Uh, but a lot of parents don't practice being aware in a, in a zoomed back fashion of what they're doing. So none of this happens without practice, by the way. So uh, you can't just decide one day to be a mindful parent. It requires that you practice pausing, being in the moment, and leaning into what you're feeling. And we spent an entire chapter uh, unpacking that. Both of you work with kids who have serious behavior issues in your research and in your clinical work. Is your advice different for those parents than it is for dealing with run-of-the-mill everyday problems, or does the same type of advice apply across the board for all types of families and situations? And Dr. Quetch, maybe you could answer first based on your work with disruptive children and those who have autism spectrum disorder. A lot to unpack there, I think, um, because historically, um, 
a lot of the evidence-based treatments that we use to work with families to address disruptive behaviors assumes a lack of skill on the parent's side. So often you will go to a treatment for your child who is experiencing disruptive behaviors and you'll go um, essentially so that a therapist can teach you possibly what you're missing. It's assumed then my child is misbehaving because of some sort of deficit within the parent. So bad, you know, bad behavior on the child part is sometimes assumed bad parenting, right? And we try to uh, challenge that myth in a way because we say you can have skills and there may be other things getting in the way of you being able to connect with your child in a meaningful way. So when working with parents of autistic kids, you know, a lot of these parents do have great skills and they are challenged because they have a neurodivergent child. They don't understand how their child experiences the world. And if they're neurotypical themselves, they think, well, when a child screams and throws a fit, that means they're being defiant, right? And therefore, I will approach my child as if they're being defiant. And I handle it by providing, you know, there's a sanction or I I put them in timeout or I, you know, have privileges removed. But it's different because sometimes a child is not tantruming because you've told them no, but instead they're having a meltdown because they are overstimulated by the sense their sensory overload in the environment, whether it's noise, light, touch. Um, and so to assume then you are Uh, your child is misbehaving because you lack skills is to neglect this complex, you know, child, this complex parent-child relationship in this environment that a parent may not even understand. So I think we, we frame it in a way in this book to understand what Tim had talked about earlier. What are the behaviors that you're seeing? And the more intense the behavior is such as, lying, aggression, um, uh, deceitfulness. Um, We need to address that first. And if those things are managed, then you sort of go up this funnel and these uh, less intense behaviors, right, are something then that you can shift your parenting goals towards. But it may look different for families based on their needs, based on the parent's own personal health, the family's health, other circumstances, um, difficult environments, et cetera. So yes, there are core things that we found to be really important to help sort of lead the child to success, but to say one size fits all for uh, each family or each parent-child relationship is neglecting the complexity of us as people and as um, a parent and a child together. Dr. Cavell, does that approach work when you're dealing with parents who have children who are bullies or may be bullied? I think the conditions necessary for a strong parent-child relationship are similar uh, in terms of what's needed. What's going to differ, Kim, 
is what's required of a parent depending on their child rearing circumstances and the characteristic of the child. I mean, the research is pretty clear that children arrive in this world with certain endowments, genetic endowments, which influences their environment. Some children are really easy to parent. Some children are very challenging to parent. And so parents have to fit what they're doing to what their child needs. Uh, for children who are easy temperament, meet schedules, they're compliant, cooperative, they're emotionally regulated. Parenting, I think the parent-child relationship is going to have the same three conditions except contain and lead, but parents won't have to work as hard as deliberately, and um, it will it will be fairly easy to pull that off. When you have a challenging child, you have to be more intentional and conscious and explicit about what you're trying to do. Winnicott, who coined the term good enough mother, uh, was a big fan of ordinary parents, ordinary mothers, in the sense that he saw in ordinary parents so many strengths. And I think our field over time has sort of cast parenting as extraordinary, as something as a... uh, a separate set of skills that you don't, you're not necessarily equipped with, uh, that you have to go to some book or some expert for. We'd like to believe that if you can manage well your relationships, including the one with your child, you're going to be fine. But recognize that for some children, the task is going to be more challenging and it's going to look a little different. Let's close with this one question. I'm going to throw it at both of you sequentially, which is for each of you, what is one piece of parenting advice that you would like to leave with our listeners. One of the things that I talk about um, within the beginning of the book, which uh, when Tim approached me about writing this together, this is the first thing that came to my mind um, and, and really stuck with me when I was first learning how to be a clinical psychologist. Um, so I'll give you, I'll give you this anecdote and then I'll sort of end with what, what I, what I mean by it all. So I had a, um, a parent come in and she had a, a young boy and she leaned in close to me when she was trying to seek services. And she said, I love my child, but I don't like my child. And it, it stuck with me for so long and it took a long time for me to connect and understand what it, that meant finally when I had my own children. Um, but I, I think the, the point being here that there are many things that you can work on as a parent. We can always do better and seek for more for our children. And yet if we can lead with love and if we can remember that at the end of the day, our task is to love our children and, and be there for them and accept them. I think that is the, the biggest thing that needs to happen first before you worry about anything else. And so there are many things we want for our children. There are many things we hope for for our children. And if we just can accept them for who they are and where they're at, I think that is the first the first thing you have to accomplish as a parent before you can try to do anything else. Dr. Cavell? Parenting involves the head and the heart, or science and art, if you will. Uh, and so some parents sometimes lead too much with what's happening emotionally. And some parents are trying to do what the science they think is right. Um, The science tells us this, there are some things that are important and try to emphasize those things. And and our book speaks to that. And there are a lot of things that are not, that don't matter that much. 
And so if you want to use your mind or the science of parenting, recognize that not everything is consequential. In fact, the science of parenting would say to you very strongly, when you go to decide where to put your energies, put it on the relationship. That's where you double down. Okay. And so if you're trying to decide, should I put my child in time out? Should I use a star chart? Should I, you know, take him to a professional? It's, pay attention to the relationship. Is my relationship with my child healthy? Is it strong? Has it, is it meeting that 80-20 criteria? And if not, what can I do to bolster that relationship? And I offer that because I don't think assessing the quality of the relationship is often what parents typically go to early. Instead, they're looking for an, a quick answer to, some, to fix some problem, as opposed to saying, how are we doing, my child and I? What can I do to make that relationship strong? Maybe do I need to, is it, does it need to be repaired in some way? Am I struggling emotionally to be available and patient with my child? What do I need to do to be an emotionally healthy parent so I can have a better relationship with my child? So it's, it's a different way to think about parenting, not as a job where you look an endless series of fixes, but it's about a relationship that you manage 18 plus years. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. I think you have provided our listeners with uh, some excellent and sound advice. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. And speaking of our listeners, if you would like a copy of Good Enough Parenting, you can visit the book section of our website, www.apa.org, and you can order one there. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.